Welcome to Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. This podcast is a collection of historical and philosophical references, contemplations, lectures, and exchanges with David M. Valadez, his students, and guests. Podcasts are recorded on the mat at the Ascension Center in Southern California and in studio. These podcasts are provided to cultivate the warrior on the way and to add light to their path. Hi, welcome to the podcast and Happy New Year. Uh, This time, our first podcast of 2019, we're going to do something a little different. I'm going to read the transcript of an interview, a radio interview that O-sensei did, Morihei Ueshiba. And let's just see where it takes us, um, what I end up saying. So... To this radio interview can be heard through Aikido Journal, and to their best estimates, this interview took place around 1962. And let's begin. Uh, and I'll I'll just say interviewer for when the interviewer is speaking, and O Sensei for when Ueshiba Sensei is answering. So interviewer. Sensei, do you train every morning without fail? Oh, Sensei. Yes, I train by myself in the morning. I always pray to the eastern sky and the four directions. I never fail to do this. In this way, I unite myself with the universe. So let's stop there. I I find this very interesting because Oh, Sensei has been asked this question multiple times in one form or another, and he always gives this answer. It's, it's not the standard answer that we hear often by, for example, modern Shihan. Like, as the generations are changing, a lot of periodicals and, and journals will ask current Shihan, you know, what's your advice to the next generation? And a common one is more subudi. And what I'm trying to say here is that O-sensei's practice, when he's asked what he does or what we should do, is he doesn't answer it with some sort of physical exercise. He seems to answer it this way always. And I think that says something, or we can read into it in some way, on what he considered his practice to be, or to at least be centered on. And so if you look back at what he said, he's asked, do you, do you practice um, every day? And he says, yes. I think that's the first thing we should notice, that his practice is daily. I think that was one of the classical assumptions of Budo training that a person practices on a daily basis. I know at our dojo, we try to set up that ideal and influence people and cultivate within them the capacity to train daily. I think people who train a few hours a week 
or sporadically, not just in terms of their physical effects, but overall the psychological and even the spiritual effects are radically different from somebody whose practice is a daily practice. And more than that, I think that the traditional technology of self that is Budo, that Budo is based upon, whether we consider that to, to be Confucian or not, it assumes a daily practice. So I think that's the first thing that we should pull out, whether we're going to use O-sensei as a role model or a guidepost, or whether we, we are structurally or philosophically interested in how Budo actually works. That here we have the founder or a senior practitioner or somebody who has accomplished more than we have, first talking about practices daily. And then the second thing that he goes right into is not an exercise like Tsubudi, definitely not Kihonwaza, some sort of basic, which is quite common how we understand arts today. Right? Return to the basics. Everything's the basics. Stick with the basics. Learn your basics. He goes right into, you know, what is my practice? Oh, it t- starts in the morning. So it starts right when I wake up. I do it every day and I pray. I think you have a couple options to that in the face of that. One, you can say, well, that old guy didn't know what he's doing. He, he didn't get it. You don't need to do that. But there's a lot of pride in there that seems to subvert the very reason for training. As it is a practice that works on cultivating a loss of self and, and thus, in some ways, a kind of humility. And it seems you can only dismiss his wisdom, his insight, his own practice through an act of pride. I think the other way we can look at what he said is, hey, let's, let's wrestle with that. Let's see why this person looked at his art as something that would include the practice of prayer. And that prayer might even hold a priority or at least a primacy in his practice. And to note that he's not talking about ikkyo or idiminage or push-ups. He's not talking about even internal power, or fajing. He's not even talking about combat victory. He wakes up every morning, and he prays. 
he goes on, I always pray to the eastern sky and the four directions. I never fail to do this. In this way, I unite myself with the universe. We become one. That Stop there. In an earlier podcast, I, I tackled the question, what is Aikido? And I said, technically... It's kind of just Japanese jiu-jitsu. Maybe one could go as far as saying it's taitoryu. But at the end, I said, mm, there's still something unique to Aikido. And it is more unique even than Budo's sense of ontology. that O-sensei's Aikido did generate, it, it was built upon what came before it, no doubt. It is inseparable from what came before it. But at the same time, there is a kind of paradigm shift. And it is this oneness, this sense of oneness, And you have, in, in pre-Aikido Budo traditions, you have this sense of selflessness. You have this, like I said, this Buddhist ontology at work where the practitioner uh, realizes the impermanence of all things, including themselves, and by which there is some sort of universal truth that underlies all of creation in a kind of singularity. But O-sensei goes past that, not in contradiction of it, but he moves past it in the sense that he does not end with impermanence. In, in many ways, he looks at things in a more positive perspective, and he comes to not the singularity of impermanence, but the oneness of all creation. And that's what he's referring to here. So the primacy of his practice happening daily is this kind of spiritual engagement, but it's of a particular kind. It is aimed at a kind of communion or a kind of union, a kind of oneness. He goes on. People say that the creator of this world is a single person. I've been assimilated into the original creator. That, that's that oneness. That's what he's talking about. He is talking about, in essence, a mystical union with the divine. He goes on. Morning and night, I am engaged in training myself. I don't do anything special like cold water dousing. Stop there. We, we know he has, right? There's pictures of him doing that. 
But even in those cases, these kind of ascetic austerities like cold water dousing or fasting. And we know Omotokyo did do those things. It was one of the rationales for the government intrusion into their compound is that there was a death at the compound associated with these kind of ascetic austerities. And for those who don't have any information on these practices, it, for centuries, way before Osensei, human beings had learned and practiced various techniques that would induce various forms of consciousness, such things as cold water dousing or fasting or sleep deprivation. It's one of the things, for example, um, in the Buddha's tales of his origins, right? He leaves the yogis because they're practicing these kind of austerities that he saw as extreme. So the Japanese government at that time also saw these practices as extreme. And that might be why in 1962, Osensei goes ahead and says, hey, yeah, you know, I'm not doing those practices anymore. I don't do those things. But you could see that those practices historically were designed and utilized in order to generate a kind of moving past yourself for the purposes of divine communion or oftentimes expressed as divine possession. So there's this, if you go back to the start, he's doing it daily. It's spiritual. It's spirit-centered. And its goal is divine communion. And he does it not just daily, but all day long. Continuing. Facing the eastern sky, I pray to all the multitude of kami and join with them for the sake of universal harmony. Then I extend greetings to the kami. I do my best in order to become a good person. As a Japanese, I want to conduct myself so as to be a credit to my country. With this in mind, I extend my greetings to the four directions. Then I think about this world. I don't know if everyone can achieve this or not. I give thanks to the Creator and convey this message to everyone in my prayers. So things like the four directions, there's all kinds of esoteric associations with the cardinal directions. They're given numerical value, and they're equated to the four elements that one can see in the, even in uh, Musashi's Book of Five Rings. Uh, they go way back. Uh, oftentimes they have esoteric associations, so only people that have been... Um, you know, indoctrinated in a particular tradition would know what each direction is associated with. There'd be various ritual practices that one would then employ, which would generate certain states of mind via the contemplation upon certain ideas, again, assigned to each cardinal direction. So there's no doubt that, that, that that's there. But it also has always had this notion that uh, 
the four directions or the diagonals included, the eight directions, always carries with it this capacity of everywhere, of it denoting everywhere. And so his practice is, at a simple level, obviously not contained to the dojo. As, as we say at our dojo, that, that wouldn't be much of a practice. But he's, his practice goes everywhere. And if you look at it, he's practicing um, not only this kind of uh, prayer for the sake of divine communion, but what type of prayer? It's a gratitude practice. They still do this in various religious traditions. Uh, even in American culture, um, people with either little to no religious exposure will still say some sort of grace at dinner time. That's it's the same same kind of thing. There's a gratitude practice. It's it's a very um, simple practice, but very effective. Uh, namely, because most of us lose track of of ourselves in the daily grind and we don't see all the things that we can be grateful for or should be grateful for or usually we don't until they're on the eve of their absence and so novices throughout religious traditions are often given this early practice of gratitude yeah, you're going to wake up and uh, just tell God all the things you're thankful for. And psychologically, what it does is it, it is a kind of mindfulness training in that it brings you to the present, but it does it in a way that it generates within you appreciation and fulfillment. And after a while, as you continue the practice, um, you come to see, as you become more skilled at it, you, you come to see the things that are really important in your life and then in life in general. And like I always say, these are not the things you've started the practice with. Maybe at, at first you talk about food and shelter. But as you become more skilled, uh, you will move to what can be categorized as the, the invisible things. And you'll see that it's only these invisible things that truly hold value. And this generates within you a kind of freedom from materiality and even from the cultural fictions such as a career or success, material success. You come to value more, let's say, the embrace your teenage son gives you when it goes a little longer 
than usual and you could tell that for him, you're still his daddy. You remember in that moment as you're transported back to when he was a baby and was holding on to you. And you'll trade anything, anything material for that moment because you will have become free through this repetitive ritual or this repetitive prayer or practicing gratitude. And that is what O-sensei is doing. And this makes sense when we know the goal is this kind of divine communion because as the way religious theory goes, it's more that the small self is kind of an obstacle to that divine communion. It, it's like we're a teacup and we're filled with tea, and that's the small self. And in order for the divine or this new tea to come in, you have to empty This is why practices like the cultivation of humility or prayer practices in gratitude are so important because they start to loosen the binds the small self has on on us. The binds through career and success and material things start to loosen And we begin to appreciate those invisible things. We have a sensitivity for those invisible things where all true value rests. And and the kicker is this, God is invisible. So it's paramount that we become sensitive to invisible things. And this is what and how O Sensei answers the question, you know, what's your training like? Oh, I do it every day. I do it all day. I do it and with the goal of of expanding my practice everywhere. And I start out with just being grateful. Nothing about ikkyo, nothing about wrist locks and pain compliance, nothing about sword cutting, nothing about combat victory, mindset, pressure testing, stress inoculation, nothing. The interviewer goes on. Interviewer, I understand that you have 27 Aikido Dojo in Hawaii. Do Americans take up Aikido as a self-defense art or do they understand it as a spiritual discipline as you have described it? So already in 1962, we have that false dichotomy between Aikido, the martial art, and Aikido, the spiritual discipline. And it, it's kind of funny. Um, 
you know, I have done various interviews for the news on, on other specialty topics, and uh, the interviewer just doesn't have the background in your field most times. And they ask questions that you go, wow, you have no idea what you're talking about, but I'm going to go ahead and answer this question because it's better that we all get along here. This radio interview kind of reads like that for me. So you have this guy and he just told you, oh, I just, I just do uh, this religious practice. That's pretty much what I'm doing. Uh, Aikido is a spiritual thing. Um, and this guy is the founder of that art. And then he's all like, uh, hey, uh, do they do self-defense or do they do what you do? I mean, how can he really answer that? Can he really go, oh, no, you know, I'm the founder and they just do self-defense? I, I mean, that's going to look back on him, isn't it? Like, well, you must suck as a teacher. So he can't really answer you using the dichotomy and just like I have had to do, you kind of just brush over the ignorance in the question. And so O-sensei does that well. So he answers O-sensei. They understand very well. Oh, weird. Okay. Uh, by looking at their faces, I could tell they understood everything. When I addressed the state legislature from the chairman's seat while in Hawaii, first I expressed my appreciation and great respect for America and Japan. There was an interpreter present because I was speaking in Japanese. I told them it wasn't necessary because just by looking at them, everyone became harmonious. If a mistake was made in translation, this old man's true spirit would be besmirched. When I talked about the idea of becoming one family, they became very happy. Through the spirit, there are not outsiders and there are not borders. Everyone belongs to a single family. Aikido does away with quarrels, fighting, and wars. Aikido is, a completely, is completely different from other martial arts. The goal of other martial arts is not fighting or quarreling. Earlier martial arts are the basis of Aikido. That's kind of weird, but translation might be off. When I hear this answer and I know the history... I, th I think uh, I know exactly what he's talking about. Um, in that earlier podcast when I mentioned, the, the one I mentioned about the question, what is Aikido, I, I believe it was that one, I gave my hypothesis that uh, O-sensei seems to be repeating ideas that he did not yet fully grasp. And... I don't maybe I should take the word yet out. He might not needed he might not have a need to grasp them. I think he was more interested in his own personal practice. Um I don't think he was out to write a book. I don't think he was out to teach it at a at a seminar or a lecture. Um he was very much centered on on his own spiritual maturity. So he didn't have a need, is, is how I think about it. But and when he does start speaking about things, it sounds, like I said then, very much like he's repeating the ideas that he heard someone else utter. And so if you know the history of this time, 
and you know the roots of things like Omotokyo, which is the new religion that O-sensei had come to associate with later on in his life. Um, you would know, for example, that Omotokyo was part of a larger international religious movement, um, one that came about with or through the horrors of World War One and World War Two. And for, you know, if you wanted to start your search on this history, I would advise you, you start looking at um, theosophy. Um, the, the theosophy movement was a movement that came post-World Wars. And those horrors, which we just take for granted now, maybe because we don't practice ritual gratitude, but they were a shock to much of the world. The amount of death, the manner in which people were killed, the atrocities associated with the wars, and the technology and machinery of murder was emotionally and psychologically devastating. We have we've whitewashed it all. But people in that time were just appalled. And movements were started with, you know, with the goal of never again. And theosophy was one of those movements. And so they looked at um, you know, conflict science and conflict resolution theory, and they came up with this idea that you can only fight or, and uh, wage war against the other. That if you could understand the oneness and, uh, between all people and between all individuals and among all of creation, then you would structurally make null and void the potential for war. Now, this might sound, of course, like Aikido, right? But it goes the other way around. This, this Aikido is based on, or this, these kind of statements are based in Omotokyo doctrine, which were based in the, theosophy. And of course, there's overlaps with Taoist doctrine as well. But theosophy, you know, looked at the industrial age and these machinery, this machinery of death, and said, um, yeah, let's not look to science. It's quite contrary nowadays, right? Because obviously theosophy did not win the cultural debate. Many people don't even know about it nowadays. Many people repeat 
the tenets of theosophy without knowing that they originated there. That's how wiped off of the cultural imagination theosophy is. They lost the cultural war on ideas. And today, science just moved forward and there's a lot of this um, uncritical acceptance that man killed way more under the flags of religion. But theosophy on the, on the you know, the day after everyone saw what science and secularism could do, um, said, nope, let's get back to our religious roots. And uh, they started looking for things that would negate the idea of the other. And what they saw is that in every single religious tradition, there is a mystical component wherein the practitioner is encouraged and, and mentored and advised to seek a loss of individuality for the sake of divine communion. And various religions throughout the world participated in this discourse at that time. And one of them was a motokyo. And so those ideas that by purifying the self, dropping the self, dissolving the self, by which they mean our attachment to self, by reconciling that attachment, this kind of divine communion comes in. You understand at the level of being the oneness of all. Then your potential for war is gone. You become a person of peace. And everything you do becomes an art of peace. So that this whole notion of peace, international harmony, serving the world by negating our individual potential for war and conflict, this divine communion, this, these are all theosophical ideas and O-sensei is here repeating them as they came into the new religion of Omotokyo through their exposure to theosophy. That's how to understand this, this second answer of O-sensei. But he, he, there's a little more to it too. Because he talks about him knowing without him intellectually knowing because the language barrier is there. So he can't understand their words, but yet he would know. And this is also very common to these mystical traditions. Um, a lot of people today will use mystic and mystical in a derogatory way. This is just a, the nature of the beast of language. It changes, right? Depending on which side of the cultural battle you're on, you, you, you twist the language to suit your needs, to deride the other, 
But for theosophy, mystical, mystic, mystical union, those were not negative terms. And they referred to somebody who was able to, in practice, at the level of being, solve the mystery of the, the, the mystery of dissolving the self. And when those people used that word, part of how they did it was they didn't mean it as some sort of magical thing like we might think in our derisional ways. They, they mean it in a very naturalistic way. Not at all one that would violate the tenets of science. And you can see that in, in how would O-sensei know? He doesn't speak the language. Well, what happens by these traditions is as you come to dissolve the self, as you come to reconcile self-attachment, the very senses that you operate with become refined. And to you, your utilization of these refined senses are as natural as they are now when you taste food or you listen to music with your ears. You feel the wind cross over your skin. But with the small self not in the way, they operate at a whole other level. It's not a new sense. It's just a refinement of current sense. So... I'll give you an example. Let's take the extreme other side. Somebody who is in a panic state, let's say they're afraid, there's violences approaching them, and they become fearful. The mind will go entirely egocentric in the untrained. We say they're vapor locking. They can't process, they can't make decisions, they can't apply wisdom. In the tactical rule, we might call this condition black. What happens? Well, they lose hearing. We know that we have cases of, of uh, law enforcement officers who... Uh, start taking their gun apart or reloading a loaded weapon because they can't hear the shots going off because under the stress, their hearing shuts down. They're firing, but they don't hear the shots going off, so they think their gun is malfunctioning. So they start doing malfunction drills in the middle of fight. They can get tunnel vision, which is a reduction of sight. We talked about amygdala hijackings or the reptilian brain taking over. So reasoning and processing and that which happens in the frontal lobe is not really happening anymore. And somebody who does the opposite of that in that same kind of environment is going to look superhuman to that other person. Is going to look otherworldly, but they're not. They just are able 
to reconcile enough fear, which usually happens through a reconciliation of self-attachment, a kind of dissolving of the small self, whether it be that you are fighting for the person next to you or whether you occupy yourself with the mission objective where you, the individual, takes a back seat. Your hearing will not shut off. Your vision will not narrow or tunnel. And you'll be able to make decisions. And when you look at these two people side by side, they will look like different species. So this extrasensory perception does not refer to a new kind and an unknown and an unrecognized sense. It's just a refined sense that comes about with the dissolvement of the small self. You get out of the way, you can sense the world more. We have similar cases that we've all heard about or we've had where you had a close call. You almost died. And it kind of sets your perspective, resets it, right? Wow. Then you go eat your next meal. That's going to be the best meal you ever had. Did you get a new sense? No. You're just out of your own way. Maybe you're with a lover that makes you entirely comfortable. You don't feel judged. You feel home at home no rejection. And their touch is going to do things to your skin that you have never felt before. Is that a new sense? You got new skin? No. In their love and in their compassion, you were able to get out of your own way and your senses have refined themselves. So this is how he would know. And you we'll see in, in later parts of the interview, he, he's talking about this, these refined senses. And you will see them in the mystical traditions, like I said. You, of course, will see them in theosophy. But we have had, just as everyday people, we've had enough of these experiences to know that this isn't really otherworldly. It's just we tend to live in another way. So the interview continues. I would like to ask you about the martial arts you practiced before Aikido. Is it true that you were weak as a child and that you began martial arts training to strengthen yourself? 
that's a, another common question because many martial arts founders will have this common history. Whether it's true or not, it still works as a kind of uh, legitimating tale, right? It's kind of a theme. Oh, I was I was weak, I was sickly, and I got into martial arts and I got strong. It's very common. And I and that's why the interviewer's asking it, in my opinion. He was waiting for O Sensei to to say that, something akin to that. But he doesn't. <laughs> o Sensei. That might seem like the case. My parents worried about me because I was a lethargic boy. I'm going to interrupt here. I bet that's a poor translation there. Normally, people are born very shrewd. Maybe maybe shrewd is the wrong word. I'm really being rude. My parents didn't have a boy. I have older and younger sisters. They didn't have a boy. They went to the Kumamoto shrine just to pray for a boy. Then I was born. Let's stop there. I think that's that's interesting. I don't I don't think. Uh, o sensei is is just going through his biography there. If we go back to the to theosophy again, uh, a common theme there is, and with all mystical traditions, is they run into a question or a problem of origin. Meaning, the question is sooner or later asked, which is our more natural state? Which is our original state? What are we meant to be like? Because you're telling me about this small self that can have auditory selection and tunnel vision, where I can't feel things, I can't see things, I don't taste things. No lover sends shivers down my spine. And then you're telling me about this other me where I don't even need to understand the language and yet I know. How do I go from one to the other? What, how does that happen? What, how does that make sense? And what many of the traditions have said, not all, but many, because many didn't say anything either way, because most mystical traditions are practice-oriented. They're not academic or theoretically oriented. They don't give a crap about these questions. You just, hey, what do you do? You wake up every day, right? And you say your prayers and you practice your gratitude and you do it everywhere you go. And then you go to sleep and you do it the next day. And if you were to ask them, okay, um, you know what? Uh, I, I was able to uh, really feel my son's hug today. And, you know, the teacher is going to go, hey, will you shut up and uh, just keep going? 
the academic later comes and asks these kind of questions. So periodically throughout history, there's these interruptions, but I think it's important for anybody to understand that those interruptions are also a kind of deviation. And the good theorist, unlike the academic, the good theorist is always going to say something akin to, well, I'll tell you this, but ultimately what I'm about to say is all bullshit. You should just keep going. So what I'm about to say is all bullshit. Because I'm repeating bullshit. So these theorists would say, well, here's, here's the problem. You see, your, your small self is a kind of false self. It's, kind of, it's not your original self. What you have to do is you got to get past it. You got to get, you got to drop it. You got to purify it. You got to deconstruct it. And then what happens is all on its own, the original self or the true self or the larger self or your soul or your spirit via some kind of grace, some kind of miracle just starts functioning independent of your will. And I think that's what, you know, when, when, you, when you get to that point, then your original self is going to be looked at kind of differently, even from the point of view of your temporal self. So what Osensei is saying here is basically that he was the answer to a prayer. I don't think that's a small thing. I think he grew up and recognized himself that way. And that way is not all that different or distant from uh, Japanese religious cosmography because through myths like the Kojiki, right, human beings are just ultimate, ultimately ancestors of the divine. He continues, From the time I was young, everyone thought there was something funny about me. I was very lethargic. I was not a fool, nor was I clever. I didn't understand anything. I was a lethargic boy. I, I'm going to say that's another translation problem, lethargic. Those were the circumstances surrounding my birth. My parents were against my traveling around, learning different martial arts. This was because in the past, one of my family members was strong and had some knowledge of martial arts and engaged in quarreling and... Allow me to turn the page here. And he enjoyed beating people up. My parents thought that was wrong and wanted to raise me to be honest and loved by everyone. Well, that's interesting. Did his parents? <laughs> and is it not like that? Did his parents shape, shape him through that dichotomy? Martial arts, beating people up, 
using strength and power over others. And as a boy being taught, no, that's wrong. And then we end up with a man who says, that's not the point of Aikido. It's very interesting. The interviewer. What about jujitsu, kenjutsu, spear training, etc.? Osensei. I did everything. At the age of six or seven, I would go to the temple to play. The temple took responsibility for me. And around that time, I read the four books and the five classics of Confucianism. I studied Japanese and Chinese history, among other subjects. I studied hard. And at the same time, I practiced various martial arts. I didn't practice them for one or two years. The longest I practiced was about three months. I went up to Tokyo when I was about 14 or 15. I studied some judo with uh, Tozawa Tokusabura-sensei. He was a senior to Jigoro Kano. You know, I practiced arts like Shinyu-ryu and Kito-ryu. However, they didn't suit me because they involved the strong fighting the weak. Interesting. Of course, in, in my, this was repeated in the podcast on what is Aikido, you can't separate O-sensei from the culture of his history. And so clearly you see he studied Buddhist studies in the temple school. He, ex- he was exposed to Confucian theory and Chinese history. What's really interesting here is today, today for economic reasons no longer recognized as such, tutelage has been thought of as something that must take decades. The irony there is that nobody is actually working on the intangible spiritual things anymore, which do take decades. And yet today, contemporary martial artists like to see, you know, years upon years in something before they will grant you any sort of recognition associated with any kind of expertise. But it was not uncommon prior to today to just do a little bit, get a small introduction. Even when you look at the history of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, the time that early pioneers started, you know, spent actually studying with someone is, is very small. Yet somebody that would have a minuscule amount of exposure and then went on to develop their own art or their own school would be derided because our assumptions have changed. And I I think what, what really changed is the amount of money associated with things, but also 
I think our understanding of what a technical base is and how one actually manifests it at the level of being, these things have also changed. So today, we're kind of like accumulators of information, like trivia. Most dojo operate like that. So you're going to learn this technique and that technique and that technique, but this is crap, and I think old generations knew that was crap. That's not how it works. You take a small base and you work it. And what counts is how many reps you do. And when did you last do them? How many hours each day? And under what conditions? I'm still a firm believer in that. You don't want to be, it's not a game of trivial, trivial pursuit. It's a practice. And, you know, more than that, I don't even think the art opens itself up to you until you do that. You collect this technique and that technique and that technique, but your understandings are all inaccurate. You have to spend hours and hours and hours and hours And the ancients knew that and they had no problem with that. So by our, by our modern contemporary accounts, we would say, well, you didn't really study anything. But that's because we're just looking at the time duration under the mentor. But if you looked at how many hours he did how many reps he did with the information that he was introduced to, you can see in his body those hours and those conditions. And you can't call him a dabbler. It's entirely different from the person who's there day after day after day, year after year, getting ranked because they've hung out long enough and the whole system just pushes them up. That's a dabbler. And the difference between the two is not the duration with the mentor, but it is the work, the quality of the work and the amount of the work that counts. The interviewer. In other words, you didn't yet understand them in a spiritual sense? Oh, sensei, these artists didn't match my spirit because they did not promote harmony. So he mentioned that twice. 
Earlier he said, they didn't suit me because they involve the strong fighting the weak. Then he says, because they didn't promote harmony. This is, this is also very interesting because when you tell somebody who is still working with their small self, that they can be martially effective by not contesting for space, by not struggling. They cannot believe it. And earlier Osensei said, he makes reference to, not many people can understand it. Let's see if I can find that quote again. But if he, if he is exposing himself to all these other arts and to him they look like this is just the strong overcoming the weak. And he, his art is something different. I, I think that, let's take a moment there. Let's go back to, to early Taoist theory because you, you see that there. You see the idea that soft overcomes hardness, right? You see it in the idea that um, even in, the, in theosophy, if you can uh, deconstruct the conflict model, then you yourself are not subject to defeat. And we see Osensei say that elsewhere. He's beyond defeat. Why? Because he's never conflicting. This is an awakened point of view. Why? Because it's a possibility open to the person who has moved beyond their small self. Why does the rest of the world struggle and contest for space? Because they are still plagued by the small self. And this now looks impossible to them. Is this non-contesting a kind of surrendering, a giving in? No, not per Taoist theory. No, soft overcomes hard. Overcomes. Will you lose? No, you're beyond losing. Losing is impossible. But you see arts, and I would say even Aikido, where they're based upon the strong overcoming the weak. Why? Well, back to Taoist theory. Because you just have yang overriding yang. A yang that overrides another yang is a yang that is kind of pressing through the yin aspects 
of the attacker's young. It's just over, overpowering it. There's no communion. There's no deconstruction of conflict. It's just overpowering it. And that's very common. This is where you have pushing and pulling in Aikido. Or even worse, where you have uke choreographed. So Naga doesn't necessarily have to push and pull. And uke will go wherever they need to go. But it is the same kind of delusion. It is the same kind of obsession with power that O-sensei probably going against his parents' upbringing, right? Saw as beneath him. The interviewer continues. Sensei, when you departed to the front during the Russo-Japanese War, you were the strongest in your unit in bayonet training and military exercises. Was your physical strength because of your martial arts training? Oh, there's another one of those interview questions. Like, didn't you just hear what I said? <laughs> oh, sensei. Yes, I suppose that's part of it. But, and that's just your combination right there. Yes, I suppose, but. Right, I'll talk to you even though you didn't hear what I just said. So he says, yes, I suppose that's part of it, but I had yet, not yet reached a spiritual awakening in the martial arts. You see, I wanted to become enlightened, but could not do so. So there's a repeating of what I had mentioned earlier. The struggle, the contention, is part of a self-attachment. And that's just the strong overcoming the weak. It's just yang against yang. And it's delusion, emotional immaturity, right? And he was that way until he reached spiritual awakening. The interviewer. In terms of technique and physical strength, no one could best you. <laughs> you didn't hear what I just said? Oh, sensei, in that sense, I hardly ever lost a match. I, enjoy, I engaged in contests, but I've always thought that there shouldn't be contests. You have a bad feeling whether you win or lose. However, when I entered the army during a time of national crisis, the soldiers were risking their lives to protect the country. Of course, you serve in the army with the spirit of risking your life. However, when I entered the army, I found little justice. Justice does not exist. Isn't there... Isn't their goal to always be victorious? What's he talking about here? I would say he's talking about the difference between fighting and the martial arts. Now, I'm not drawing a distinction between martial viability and spiritual viability. Those are very much interrelated codependent but the goals are different in fighting 
and the and the goals different in martial arts training. And I covered this a little bit in the last podcast on strength. In fighting, the goal is victory. And you will achieve that victory however you can. And victory is related to, but not entirely, but related to you not dying. Right, if, you're, if your combat is individual, one-on-one, then it is very much related to you not dying. But if your combat is squad-based, then not necessarily. The squads can still win and probably, you know, very much can win because you die. Depends how you die. But victory overrides everything, including your own death. This is not the case in martial arts. Martial arts training, not the case. There's other goals. So what, what O-sensei is saying here is, you know, probably, this probably does go back to his parents, which we know nothing about, really. Oh, his father was in the merchant class. Like, what does that even mean? It's not the merchant class of the Edo period. Japan was in radical transition at this time. At his parents' time. But he's talking about, I would do these contests, but I would have bad feelings even when I won or I lost. He seems primed for compassion, doesn't he? We have this, uh, I don't know how it started. There's a kind of family tradition where we, we got, everyone will start playing Texas Hold'em. It's a poker game. And, you know, recently I've just, I've just realized, like, you know, it's not really fun for the person who's not winning. We don't play for real cash. We're just playing chips. But, I mean, it's quite demoralizing. And even if you're winning, you, you look at across and this was supposed to be a fun thing. To play at a family gathering or a family holiday. And, you know, there's two or three people that are just bummed. Most of us will just gloss over that, especially if we're the winners, right? And we look forward to the next holiday. Let's get the poker set out. But some of us will go, yeah, it's not really... I'm not actually enjoying it because I can feel the other person's lack of enjoyment. I think that's what O-sensei is talking about here. The interviewer. The only thing important is to win. He's commenting on O-sensei's statement about fighting in the military, in war. O-sensei, yes, it's the principle of winning at all costs, as I said before. You must win the war. You cannot lose. 
Of course, it must be that way. What matters is winning. The spirit of honor is the soldier's spirit. Honor means killing as many of the enemy as possible. This becomes a meritorious deed. Because of this, everything leads to conflict. This is not the true will of the emperor. That's going to be a bad translation. Let's stop there and I'll explain that in a little bit. So, um, Omoto-kyo <coughs> is considered a new religion. New, what does that mean? It means that it wasn't part of uh, classical Buddhism, Confucianism, Taoism, etc., They, nonetheless, were based on those, but they went further. They did different things. Um, a lot of them were influenced by Christianity in one way or another, or by other world religion movements like theosophy. And Omoto-kyo was no, was no different. Um, but because they were operating with a traditional Japanese religious discourse, they would use key terms, but they would use them quite differently. So you'd have things like uh, Yamato Damashi or something like that, like the, the ultimate spirit of Japan. And so a translator who would go, oh, that's that word, and then they get a kanji dictionary, and then they look it up, and may, oh, that's not in there anymore, so they find some other dictionary, and then they just take that meaning. But they don't realize that Omotokyo is not really using it like that. And that's how you get these translations, like this is not the true will of the emperor. So I don't have the original audio right here before me, and I, I haven't heard it. I'm just working with this transcript. Um, but I would guess that this is a Motokyo term that Osensei was repeating, which the fascist Japanese did equate to the emperor, but which Emoto-kyo equated more to uh, the universal divine spirit in all human beings. So if you, if you are listening to the audio, you can maybe look into that. The interviewer. Is the reason that you consider Budo to be loved because you are much stronger than other people and don't worry about winning and losing? Oh, that's interesting. Holy cow. I think I'd walk out about now. <laughs> I'd just go, yeah, never mind. I'll see you later. I got prayers to do. <laughs> okay, oh, sensei. That's right. Is it? Let's see. <laughs> That's right. Even now, it's true. When you look at a person's eyes or observe an opponent's technique, it's not a matter of looking at his outer appearance. You absorb everything into yourself, into your body, because your opponent is inside you. There is not a particular reason to fight. There's that theosophy. 
conflict theory, conflict resolution theory, right? You become one. There's no other. There's no reason to fight now. This is the basis for the principle of non-resistance or, or non-contention. Same, that was already discussed. The principle of non-resistance is the strongest form of resistance. There's that soft overcoming hard that goes all the way back to Taoist theory. And of course, is a basis for all of what we today call jujitsu. Then here's that extra step. It's the principle of protecting everyone. That is non-resistance. I stopped engaging in contests when I was 55. You should not engage in contests. You shouldn't use that kind of cunning intelligence to fight. Why must we acquire great wisdom? From now on, Japan must lead the world as a spiritual nation. Let's stop there. Um, this very much is related to theosophy. So much of the Pacific War was not that well known to the West. It was fought in places where people did not live. Um, the news media could not get there. Not quite, you know, not at all the same as what was going on in Europe. There were atrocities in the Pacific War, great atrocities. But when movements like Theosophy came about, their perspective was from the European theaters and the East was posited as a kind of way of saving the West. Saving them from what? Save, saving them from materialism and out-of-control science. How? With ancient wisdom, mystic-based, practice-based. And so movements like theosophy would really look to... Countries like Japan and China and India, which is why even if you study religion today in the United States, for example, you're going to study those movements. You're going to have a lot of classes on uh, East Asia and subcontinent India. Those religious traditions coming out of there presented to the West a kind of alternative. And still to this day, people don't realize this history and this, this influence anymore, but you have a lot of people who, you know, had become tired of Judeo-Christian traditions and now they do Zen. And, and that's what you, you see here when O-sensei is saying, from now on, Japan must lead the world as a spiritual nation. We need to strive toward that goal. 
It is that spirit that must inspire the world. That, too, is the principle of non-resistance. You shouldn't look at your opponent's eyes because if you do, he will capture your mind and you will become small. If you just stand there in a carefree way, you will absorb your opponent into your center. At that at the instant he comes to strike, you just look at him and laugh, and he is thrown without knowing how. Both of us are happy. That is the kind of feeling, in other words, my partner here from America is, is from here is from America. Watch this for a moment. Sensei like this. You do this and your opponent comes to attack, you deal with him in a flash like this. There's nothing to it. Through love and using the force of gravity, I advance when he comes to attack and I send him flying. What He's describing to him what it feels like to practice non-contention, non-resistance, acceptance. He's not the only one who's done that. You, 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 and, and you have to first recognize that he's not just talking about a technical perspective. This is a practical perspective. He is talking about what he calls takamusaiki. He is talking about the spontaneous application of non-contestation. The spontaneous manifestation of communion. The spontaneous dissolvement of the small self. And unlike contesting and struggling, there's no fear. And with the absence of fear is the presence of love and of joy. And it all feels like you didn't do anything because there is no you to do it. The subjective experience of self is not the same. It just happens is what it feels like. He says, this is the kind of feeling Interviewer, your partner looks like he's over six feet tall. Oh, sensei, yes, he's over six feet tall. I think they're talking about Terry Dobson here, who is a tall dude. Interviewer, I guess he weighs about 200 pounds. Oh, sensei, he weighs about 230 pounds. Interviewer, 230 pounds. His name is Terry? Uh, Dobson, yes. Oh, sensei, he's about six feet two inches. He's six feet two inches, but he's still a boy. <laughs> that is so awesome. It's no problem. <laughs> it's no problem at all. I'm only about five feet one inch tall. What can Japanese do against such big people? <laughs> Everyone is made of matter. When you open up your spirit, you are open to the universal dimension. It's pointless to compare us. It's not a problem of all it it's not a problem of all the countries being a big being big. 
It doesn't matter if it's a small country. Being a big country is a hindrance. Japanese martial arts are spiritual arts, and we must guide the world. It must promote harmony and become the center. We must not fight. If we fight, that is the end. There's that theosophical concern. But, you know, this makes me think about it. It's like, I'm never impressed by those martial arts demonstrations. Well, one, I'm not impressed by demonstrations. But let's say there is one and I'm looking at it. I'm less impressed <laughs> when it's a giant guy doing this technique on this small person. How is that a sign of skill? I think that's why, why, what the point that Osensei is making here. He could have demonstrated Takamusaiki with anybody's size. But he's making the point, look, you interviewer, I can tell how you think with these dumb questions you ask as if I hadn't answered and said something entirely different, you are stuck in your small self and strength and contention. Let me show you. I'm going to take this 230 pound from this giant country called America. And I'm going to overcome by harmonizing yin and yang and dissolving the self where I only experience joy and love. It makes a bigger point, as big as the uke is. Interviewer, Sensei, this year you are 80 years old. Oh, Sensei, let's say I'm about that old. Interviewer, you're really energetic. How many hours do you sleep a day? Oh, sensei, two hours. Yikes, that's terrible. But it happens when you get older. It's hard to sleep. Some days I only sleep one hour. My meals consist of rye gruel and dried plums. When I was younger, I would eat more than seven cups, seven cups of rice, excuse me, seven cups of rice at a single sitting and still not be full. But now, one small bowl of rice is enough. After coming here, I have them serve me just a little rice in a bowl. Interviewer, you don't seem to have any problems with your hearing. Yes, my ears are fine. My mouth works fine too. <laughs> Interviewer, you don't seem to get out of breath when doing such strenuous movements. Oh, sensei, I don't get out of breath at all. Even if I practice all day long with any opponent, whomever, I don't get out of breath. I can live on the rice gruel and dried plums alone. Even a single leaf of green is enough for a meal for me. It becomes flesh and blood. You must be thankful for anything and everything. There's that gratitude practice. Today I consider it an honor that you have come here to visit and ask me about different things. We have gotten along together perfectly well. That is Ike. Interviewer, thank you very much. Sensei, how old are you? People in general say I'm 80. People such as yourself think I'm 85 or 86, but 80 is the lower age. Let's say I'm 80. We'll leave it at that. Interviewer, 
I actually watched you performing. You're really vigorous. Is there anything in particular wrong with you? I think he's asking health-wise. Oh, sensei, when I practice, I forget about my pains. Usually, it's tough because I'm old, but once I'm standing in the dojo in front of people, the usual ueshiba disappears. I forget that I'm old. There's that dissolvement of the small self, right? Associated with him, him, with Morihei Ueshiba. It was very interesting because Omoto Kyo's practices were very much into, you know, religiously we would consider them a type of possession cult. You empty, you empty yourself and the spirit comes into you. We'd like to think of it that way. I mean, psychologically, it's a much more complicated process. But what is being emptied is the you of this time and place so that you get in touch with the universal you, the eternal you. And so the Morihei Ueshiba disappears, but when he's training, he's the universal eternal aspect of himself. And his pains go away. His inflamed joints go away. His tight muscles go away. His weakness goes away. All the things that remind him that he is a body, it all goes away. I think there's something there. We need to think on that. Interviewer, how about your eyes and ears? Oh, sensei, no problem with them. I'm in good health. Interviewer, really? Well, (laughs) then it's thanks to Aikido. Oh, sensei, you know there's nothing more healthy than Aikido. You won't find a healthier method. Japanese in every house should practice it. In other words, they should practice it as a household treasure. Aikido is not something this old man owns or receives remuneration for or teaches for a fee. It is a technique that serves all of Japan. The reason is that Aikido is a path of self-perfection for human beings. Ah, there you have it. There's that whole process. It's a technology of self. Aimed at divine communion and the disillusion or the deconstruction of conflict through non contention. It can't really get clearer. 
There's also this thing about, you know, movement, body, movement, mobility, strength, right? How many mats are crowded with stiff bodies, weak bodies, can't get up and down, I don't think that's separate from the art. I think the training and one's practice should be of such a nature that you should surprise somebody with your true age. They should look at you and go, wow, you move like a teenager and you're in your 50s. The irony is that teenagers today move like people in their 80s. Interviewer, when did you start using the word Aikido? Oh, sensei. Aikido came after the war. He's talking about the word. After the Pacific War, I thought I wouldn't continue doing Aikido, but would would retire to the mountains. I became seriously ill. My body suddenly became sick. I thought I would stop practicing since I didn't have the power I used to have in the past. Before I had confidence in my physical power. In terms of physical power alone, I, never, I was never defeated by anyone. One time, I carried a weight over 1,200 pounds. Interesting. Interesting. Up until the war, he was still attached to his physical strength. Maybe what people are trying to point at in post-war, pre-war Aikido is not really accurately described by some break with Daito Ryu, with the technical lexicon of Daito Ryu, but more this individual personal detachment from strength, from physical muscular strength that Osensei experienced. And maybe it was a result of him having become sick. That's not uncommon. Many people in history have learned and refined technique when what they were relying upon at first was no longer available to them. That's interesting. It also lends itself to something I said in the last podcast, which is there is no Aiki but through strength. This is what I'm referring to. I mean, he lifted 1,200 pounds. Holy cow. Interviewer, is that right with your body? Oh, sensei, yes. Now people ridicule my body, but it used to be that. You could see rippling muscles when this old man had his clothes off. At one time, I weighed 175 pounds. Now I weigh somewhere around 132 pounds, I think. I still have this kind of physique. I used to have, a rip, I used to have rippling muscles, but they all disappeared. Now my body is really soft like a woman. It's true. <laughs> my body is really attractive when I take my clothes off. Let's just leave it at that. He's, he's referring to the softness. 
Japanese erotica is is often different from uh, from other cultures. So there's a there is an erotic uh, element to just the softness, just to softness. That's what he's referring to. He's not talking about man boobs. <laughs> Interview. How is it that you came to use the word Aikido? Yeah, did you see how he kind of dodged that question the first time it was asked? Let me get a drink here. Oh, Sensei, I didn't name it. I was born in Japan, and Aikido is the greatest treasure of our nation. It's not just something that a person just gives a name to. Oh, let's go back to that one line. He says he doesn't own Aikido. Think about that. And all our federations. Now they're all at war with each other. This is so ironic. Right? This federation won't work with that federation. This federation hates that federation. Doesn't recognize rank from that federation. No joint seminars. All from the art of non-contention and communion. And they all own it. They all own Aikido. You all pay for it. But here's the founder, and he's telling you, I don't even own it. I mean, who would own that? How could you own that? How could you own a technology of self? Are you going to patent it? You're going to stop all people from dissolving the small self, from reconciling fear and pride and ignorance? You're going to get a t-shirt and a logo to go with that? How how far we have fallen. What a joke. Oh, Sensei continuing. After I left Aikido for a while, Mr. Kotaro Nakamura of the Ministry of Education suggested it should be named Aikido. And we had a discussion about it. So we decided to call it Aikido. I thought that was fine and agreed to call it Aikido. It was like no big deal. Why wouldn't it be that way for him? What do I care what you call it? (laughs) Call it whatever you want. It won't make you able to do it. There's still a lot to be done. Did you wake up and say your prayers? Did you go to sleep praying the whole day? Did you give thanks for everything? I don't care what you call it. Oh, Sensei continuing. This was after the war and the name stuck. (laughs) I need to do a bit of research myself. I mean, I guess he's saying here, I don't even really know the history of how the name came about. That is so freaking fantastic. (sighs) The martial arts created so far... Uh, so, so far from the foundation. There are martial arts of the physical... These are martial arts of the physical world. Oh, he's already talking about a degeneration of martial arts. 
The spirit of physical things is called haku. Haku comes from konpaku, meaning spirit. We say, for example, he's, a, he's great because he has physical strength. But in reality, the world of physical power is not great. The world of the spirit... Oh, let's just stop there for a second. This is a common trend in martial arts, but it is very true. A practitioner whose art is strength-dependent, physical strength, there's, there's always going to be muscle utilization, so let's not get into that. But somebody who's, who's using muscle isolation, um, you know, I'm going to use my pectorals, I'm going to use my quadriceps, I'm going to use my deltoids, um, they can get very strong. And I have seen people, let's say, for example, they follow the advice of contemporary Shihan, and they, you know, when they're asked when they're about to retire, what should the current generation do? Do more saburi. And they do their sabuti, and they have hundreds and thousands of reps each day, and they will get strong. No doubt about it. But they didn't develop anything close to what O-sensei is talking about here at a practical level. And what happens is, as they start hitting 50, 60, they're not so strong anymore, and they don't have an alternative like O-sensei was able to find. And their technique becomes weak. And they're now starting to bounce off of people that they used to just override in their young versus young contention. That's what he's talking about. This, this has become so accepted nowadays. It's why there's weight categories and things like that. Everyone accepts them. O Sensei continues. The world of the spirit, that is, the world of Tamashi, must emerge. The nation of Japan is a spiritual kingdom. Physical strength alone is not enough. Strength is physical. The spirit of physical matter is called Haku. The body consists of this matter. Power is created by the coming together of these two things. You see that a lot. You see that a lot in, in mystical traditions. So dabblers and later academics will kind of posit this separation of the spirit and the body, but not the true mystics. In some way, the spirit or the heart-mind, senshin, has always existed and has come to adapt to an existence inside the human body. And so a practice meant to get back to this original self cannot oppose the body, but must find a way of harmonizing those two things, unifying those two things. That's what he's talking about. Oh, sensei continuing. This is called hakuryoku, in other words, power. Its life is short, he means of the body, 
But spiritual power is the opposite. All of these aspects of the spiritual realm are one. Why would this old man Ueshiba say these things? He's like, I'm not, I'm not making this up. <laughs> this world was made by a single creator. Human beings were created last, weren't they, in Japan? He's asking the interviewer. Go Nansan Joshin represents the beginning of the human race. The vestiges can be found in Omi in Shiga Prefecture. I'm a direct spirit descendant from the Kami. So remember, I referred earlier to the Kojiki, which is a creation, one of the creation myths of Japan, one of the discourses. And in that myth, they're the, you know, kind of following Taoist theory, you had this kind of uh, void and then the yin and yang deity manifestations were born and then they kept having more and more offspring uh, after they created the islands of Japan and eventually they had human, uh, there were human ancestors. And so Japanese people through these creation myths can trace themselves back to their divine origin. But that was also something that the the Theosophical society and theosophy was into that your original self is divine, your original self is part of that universe, that universal eternal aspect kind of gets into you. And you just got to uncover it. Oh, Sensei continues I am what is called a wakemitama. Okay, so this is a kind of specialized term from uh, more known today from Shinto. Um, we we often in religious studies we translate that as the tutelary deity. So it works kind of like this: um, you have some sort of kami, which can loosely be defined as a, or translated as a deity. And it's associated with a particular place, usually. And uh, in order for it to uh, go someplace else, because it is of the divine, it has that capacity, and it can manifest itself in this other place. And now that other manifestation is a kind of tutelary deity. And it's you, you know, that's what he's saying. So he's repeating that theosophical position that in you is this universal eternal aspect of the divine because you are the divine. But it's also very much in alignment with uh, Japanese cosmology. And he's just saying it. I am what is called a wakimitami, mitama, sorry, that has separated from the kami. Religious people would call me a honshu gojin, a spirit who works on behalf of the kami. This is kind of like that, like the uh, Buddhist bodhisattva concept. And remember earlier on, right, what did he say? <laughs> His birth was the result of a prayer.
And this is also very much a part of theosophy, that the divine will manifest itself in everyone, but in, per- in some people it will manifest itself for the purposes of assisting others in this very process of enlightenment. So those who don't, I just I just threw out that word bodhisattva. A bodhisattva is a Buddhist version of that. We everyone's heard of the Buddha, right? A Buddha is an awakened being. Well, a bodhisattva is a practitioner who is capable of a reaching awakening or enlightenment, and therefore leaving the realm of the of samsara the the cycle of life and death but out of compassion for everyone else they decide not to and they stay to help others pedagogically i think this is this is not this might sound like other you know crazy to some of you but Pedagogically, this is important. I've, I saw a very relevant old text on, on when to find your master, and they were clear about it. If you find your master too late, you, you pretty much can't learn from them. They, they don't even, they have forgotten more things than you can even imagine. That's not the best person to learn from. You have to find a teacher. <laughs> who still has some a, a foot in your world so that they can help you understand things not of your world. That's what a bodhisattva is. That's what O-sensei is saying he is. Continuing. That is who I am. I am a manifestation of body, spirit, and strength, and I am emerging in the process of perfecting myself. Of course, I am refining what the quack doctors call the six senses. Oh, there you have it. So he's not talking about otherworldly senses. He's just talking about a refining of the human senses given to him. Then I proceed to this field, the immaculate place that serves as my dojo where I pursue my ascetic training. Isn't that what it is? Budo as asceticism. Oh, Sensei continuing. When I reach this state of performing austerities, I become the spirit of Izunome no Mitama, sometimes referred to as Izunome. No kami. So you, if you want to look up that, that deity, you probably have more luck as Izunome no kami versus Mitama. It's another word for it, an older one. That deity is very interesting. And it's hard to know what aspect or what understanding O-sensei had, if any, of that deity. Um, this deity is a descendant of the male aspect of the creator deities in Japan, Japanese mythology. So, long story short, um, the yin and yang counterparts, the male and female deities, are giving birth to all these various elements and things. 
in the myth, eventually the female deity gives birth to the god of fire. The god of fire uh, burns her as he's coming down the birth canal and kills her. And she now has to go reside in the land of the dead. Well, the male deity misses his beloved spouse. And he uh, goes to find her and says, hey, that's enough. You need to come back home. And, uh, you know, she's, he goes to this cave where she's at. And she doesn't want him to see her because she's been rotting as a corpse. And she's nowhere near the beauty he remembers. Um, but he goes ahead and looks through some trickery, and um, he realizes, oh, crap. <laughs> She's rotting, and now I'm rotting because I was in the land of the dead. And so he goes, he has to purify himself. And so he uh, starts to do a kind of ritual bathing, and several other deities are born out of his purification, and this uh, Izunome is one of them. So, she's very much related to the practice of purification. Um, but she also has, has these other uh, tone, th these other notions of harmonizing yin and yang, which clearly was important to a sensei. She's associated with the kind of fire and water dichotomy, which is ancient way of symbolizing yin and yang. Oh, Sensei continuing. This produces the true power of the Japanese spirit. So that's one of those phrases I would look up uh, if you have the audio before you and understand that Omoto Kyo used those slogans very differently from how uh, fascist Japan used those terms. When this occurs, the great universe becomes the training grounds, the shrine, the dojo. I emerge with the great universe. The universe and I become one. There it is. Oh, Sensei continued. Thus, for the first time, there is life. Aikido is the shortest path to performing this kind of austerities. Through Aikido, I am able to nurture the entire universe. In other words, this entire universe is the manifestation of a kami of the Creator. So you can see he's aware of other paths. He's aware of other ascetic practices. And he, he's like, this is the shortest one though. And I would agree. I would agree. Budo by far and Aikido in particular is the shortest path to this oneness. Sensei continuing, this bright world and the business world are all manifestations of the emotions of a kami. Even though the kingdom of heaven and innumerable kami and all of the mountains, rivers, trees, and plants and the great spirit of love toward all things, they are all manifestations of the movements of the form and spirit of the kami. So again, uh, that's that idea that there's this divine aspect in everything and in everyone. 
The manifestation of emotion is an expression of this form, same with our emotions. I lead people to the establishment of the great spirit of the universal nation. That's that theosophical idea where we're all going to become one. Aikido is a form of divine austerity and works. The two deities, Izanami and Izanagi, those are those two yin-yang, male and female deities I mentioned in that creation myth. They gave birth to Japan. In other words, Aikido represents the divine acts of misogi or purifications that creates nation and the kami. So um, this idea of getting past your small self, of refining the senses for for higher degrees of sensory perception, um, the new religions, Motokyo in particular, saw that you used the discourse of purification to achieve that ends. So remember, I, earlier I mentioned that sometimes it's a, a dropping off, a dissolving, but sometimes it's a purifying. So your, your act of dropping the small self is an act of purifying. Um, why? Because past the act of purification is this pristine aspect. That's your not small self or your larger self or your true self or what have you. They call it different things in different traditions. And that's what he's referring to here. This doesn't mean that we have to discard the martial arts. I have experienced all sorts of martial arts that were developed due to the vast knowledge and great skills of the masters. So he, he's not throwing every, all those past traditions under the bus including his past teachers. We must create for ourselves true Japanese Budo using these earlier martial arts as the foundation. So you see, he's understanding his own art, his own practice as a matter of moving past those arts that have the strong overcoming the weak, those arts of contention, those arts of contest. In other words, as, I've, as I have just said, we must cause the flower of the Spirit to bloom and nurture a Japan that has meaning in our lives. Oh, that's key. Because many of us are in a desert of meaninglessness right now. And that is something you see when you read or you practice these mystical traditions or you study them. You'll see that, as I said earlier, through a gratitude practice, you come to see what truly has meaning. Well, then now you have meaning in your life. And all the wasted energy of accumulating career and wealth, all these visible things... You finally see past it. All the cultural fictions, you see past them. You see the truth and the necessity of these invisible things. And meaning returns to you and your life. O-sensei continues, this is the meaning of the divine mission. 
So there's a kind of psychological component to this as well. And I would agree. There's a wellness mandate that we undertake this path. Osensei continues, Aikido's path must be to seek that which completes the divine mission. We must conduct our worldly activities filled with the key and breath that we have received from the heaven and earth. It's the same for everyone, even in politics and for people like you too. Everyone receives the breath of heaven and earth and conducts all their activities thanks to this. We must practice Aiki in exactly this way. The interviewer, I see. So Aikido is a martial art that does not involve attacks. <laughs> I, I don't think he's that hard to understand. But clearly, if you don't know, you know, like this interviewer, he's working within his, his own cultural paradigm, which has nothing to do with uh, theosophical theories and mystical union. And, yeah. But it makes sense. Psychologically, pedagogically, everyday life, it makes sense. But if you're not thinking like that, I mean, this guy is, you're going to hear gibberish and you're going to ask a question like, after you hear all that, you're going to ask, so Aikido is a martial art that does not involve attacks? <laughs> oh, sensei. Attacks? <laughs> Everything are part of the martial art of love. Oh, that's fantastic. Oh, wait, attacking? Yes. And why would it not be? If it is a reconciliation of yin and yang, it can't be a rejection of yang. So it's going to include a temi. It's going to include attacks. Oh, sensei continues, everything is born of one. There, which one? Oh, that's just Taoist theory, right? First was the Tao, then the yin and yang. The whole world belongs to a single family. He's, gonna, he's just going to ignore him. He gives him one sentence and then goes on. The whole world belongs to a single family. I always saw this. The f and he's quoting something here. The form of this beautiful heaven and earth fashioned by the creator has become a single family. That's straight theosophy. There is not a single person who is not part of this family. The entire world is like a single family. That is why this old man is doing his duty as a member of this family. Oh, there's some Confucian theory for you, right? Imagine that. If we all felt a duty to get over our small self, to overcome our fear, overcome our pride, overcome our ignorance. Imagine if that if we had a sense of duty for that. Amazing. Put in another way, the breath of earth and the breath of heaven are all within me. I must perform my duty with this breath I have received. Why, why does he have that duty? Because he has that divine spark in him. Straight Confucian theory. Yeah, he owes Oh, Sensei continuing, the meaning of the breath of the great earth is red jewel and the white jewel. 
千代光の玉千代姫の玉豊臣姫 and 玉頼姫 spirits of the sea god's palace <laughs> that guy wouldn't get that stuff at all so these are all、um, references from the kojiki and through a motokyo theory with theosophical influence they've been designated with various yin and yang meanings and、um, and Ultimately, they are meant to be to represent、um, creation, but also when entered into a certain relationship with each other, this kind of reconciliation of yin and yang and thus of communion. In other words, this refers to the world. Of the ancestors of the emperor in Japan. It's a matter of breathing. It's not the work of the spirits of the sea god's palace. Yeah, if you don't know those myths, you're like, what is he talking about? But like I said, he, he's continually repeating that process of there's a divine spark,、uh, your small self's in the way,、uh, practice non contention. Uh, harmonization, reconciling yin and yang, and,、uh, and discover and unite with the divine spark in communion. This is the kokyu of the earth. The kokyu of the earth does not move without the kokyu of heaven, all yin yang theory. When the kokyu of heaven、um, descends, when the heaven and earth meet, matter first comes into being. That's another.、Uh, Creation myth stuff and the same kind of yin yang theory. The movements of ebbing of the tide combine to create Aikido. In other words, Aikido renders service by penetrating, breathing, and caressing the key of, universe, of the universe, the key of Om. The Om is、uh, from the alpha to the omega. So、uh, again, more yin yang. Of all the things of nature, Aikido serves the path of completion of all things. Aikido is not just flashy swordplay. Swordplay leads to Cold War due to the reverberations produced when bodies come into contact with bodies and things with things. We must seriously reflect on the history and geography of Japan. There is a history book that tells all about the strategies of warfare of Japan. Books like the classics, the Kojiki, the Chronicles of Ancient Events are all like that. Despite the fact that everyone dislikes them, the teachings of our departed imperial ancestors themselves are strategies. As for these strategies, fighting in this world has long persisted. This fighting, this fighting is completely pointless. We must use the strategy of Ki, that is, the spirit of Aiki. Well, that's interesting. So he's using the concept of strategy, the science of achieving a desired end efficiently. And he's superimposing it upon this technology of self. That's genius. Oh, Sensei continuing. Thus far, this has been a matter world of 
physical matter, but now we are entering into a soft and fluid or gaseous age. This is to this is from Theosophy. So they they were like, uh, you know, that there was a belief that uh, following the wars that the world is entering into this state of consciousness development. You still see that and hear that in um, oh, what is that one thinker's name? Deepak Chopra, he still talks like that. Even Eckhart Tolle talks like that, that we're in this new age, right? And even the phrase new age just was referenced to that. This is the you know, sensei continuing. This is the way it is. I throw with key, I throw without using my hands. I shout A and use key and they fall down. Somehow, I lead my partner using my spiritual insight. That's those senses again, those refined senses. My partner from yesterday is sitting here. It's not a matter of thinking I'll do this or that with my partner. So, it's not thinking. There's no subjective, there's no subject or agent acting. Oh, sensei, continue. You can't prepare a technique in advance. Oh, this is straight shuhadi. Right, this is, he's talking about the process of spontaneity. He's talking about takamusaiki. So you can't prepare a technique in advance. You have to act on a case-by-case basis. So how much does that, what's that say about the current martial arts training where everyone's just accumulating techniques? He's on the other, he's on a whole other realm, which is, why I said shu hadi. So shu form, right? Ha deconstruction of form and di is the reconciliation of form and non-form. This 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 is an old model um used in martial Japanese martial arts, but it goes back to Buddhist uh, theory because the Buddhist practitioner that was trying to reach this mystical union had the same problem with form. And so that's where you ultimately get those famous sayings, like if you see the Buddha, kill the Buddha, right? Because the practitioner will become attached to the form of the Buddha, and now they're an academic. We do a lot of Jiyuwaza at our dojo, and that's, you see this all the time, that people are trying to pick techniques before the uke comes in, before the attack is manifested, and this is just nothing. Oh, sensei continuing. Martial arts are not something you do by choosing a technique. You act on an individual basis. Aikido is the basis of the principle, spiritual, and secular unity that clarifies the design of all creation and all kami. It is the principle of spiritual and secular unity that illuminates the design. Oh, we did that, sorry. This is the great democracy, you see. You may dislike the things I'm saying, but you really shouldn't. Things are the way they are because people don't know the history and geography of Japan. They have forgotten who they are. This is another common theme in mystical traditions. Once your small self is, is, is ingrained, then you lose track of your divine self. 
If you look inside yourself and observe your body with your inward eye, this understanding will lead you to see the history of the kami running through your blood. It's all inside your body. The past, aeons ago, and the future are played out inside your body in one lifetime. That, again, is the repeat of that idea that there is an aspect of all of us that is universal and eternal, but your small self is very much temporally bonded to the here and now, uh, this material, fictitious reality, which is temporary reality. Oh, Sensei continuing, it's a matter of taking a decisive step. You have to make up your mind. Are you going to just live out your days with small self-attachment? What he cautioned you earlier, right? There's some sort of wellness mandate. You're going to risk it? as you come face to face with the meaninglessness of material things? Or are you going to make a decisive step and follow him? Walk where he walked? Oh, Sensei continued, all of the workings taking place inside the body reflect the history of the age of the kami. This is Aiki. This it, that is, the prime object of Aikido is to construct a paradise on earth by creating harmony in the world and making friends. By doing this, there are no enemies. This amounts to the principle of non-resistance. So, going back to theosophy a little bit, it wasn't just that they used mysticism to have everybody within them lose their sense of the other to therefore deconstruct conflict and to prevent war from happening. They had another goal um, where, as many of these mystical traditions do, that when people were able to do that, they would manifest heaven on earth or paradise on earth. And here you, you see O-sensei talking about that. Paradise on earth by creating harmony in the world and making friends. By doing this, there are no enemies. Oh, Sensei continuing. However, behind this principle of non-resistance lies the great principle of resistance. Oh, that's hilarious. He he mentioned that earlier. So what he's talking about is this is a Taoist theory. So soft overcomes hard. Um right. Uh, and so non-resistance is the more powerful resistance. So you know, just classic. Jiu-jitsu, for example, um, if you want to win, uh, the way to win is to yield in this spot. And as you yield in this spot, then the new opening manifests itself. And this person who was once dominating now created an opening, and now you can take advantage and apply a submission. That, that's kind of what he's talking about here.
Osensei continued, I have everyone listen to these things wherever I go and have them act on it. When people say, quote, that old man Ueshiba really taught me some good things about Japan, unquote. When they really feel grateful, that's when this old man Ueshiba will be of some value. People understand and give some thought to what I have said. Will we? I think we should. Give some thought. It seems the least we can do. For ourselves, right? And for the world. for ourselves, and for everyone. Let's stop there. This concludes this episode of Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. For more information, please visit sentioncenter.com, S-E-N-S-H-I-N-C-E-N-T-E-R.com or find us at Facebook at Sension Center and on our YouTube channel at Sension One. Thank you for listening.